today, we're just kind of going to spend some time. I'm going to share just some of my reflections over this past year that hopefully you might find uh, to be in the same boat or encouraging. But what I want to start here is how many of you are New Year's resolution people? Show of hands. How many of you like actually make them, write them down? Okay, about half of us. How many of you are the type of people where it's like, well, I'll make them, but they don't start till Monday. They don't start till tomorrow, right? Like you can only start new stuff on, on a Monday. Uh, you know, when they say uh, the most common New Year's resolutions every year are, are things like this. Uh, they say the most common one, which we'd all probably know and realize, is to exercise or lose weight. Uh, a lot of people resolute to, to, to read more. One uh, a common one this past couple years, uh, this study showed, is to get organized. Some people say, I want to take this new year to learn a new skill or hobby. And then there's what they call the recycling uh, theory, which is I want to stop doing X and start doing Y. And as I was kind of doing some of this research, I found some, uh, some people took to the internet to share some of their resolutions that were a little bit more lighthearted. And so share some of those with you this morning. This person said, I resolve this year to love myself as much as Lizzo loves herself. So if you're under the age of about 25, you can probably get that reference. Everyone else, you can look that up later and, and that joke's for free. Uh, this person says, uh, and kind of ironically, that I, want, I am going to be unashamed about wearing pajamas in public instead of self-loathing about it. I was like, that's pretty good. Uh, this is from a senior citizen, and I hope you can get the humor in this one. But this guy said, I resolve to eat dessert first because I could go at any moment. And I was like, that's so good. That's such a good way of looking at it. And then this one was just like... Just cracking me up. This person said, I want to try to be less irritated by my coworkers. And so to do this, I will create elaborate backstories in my head about them. For example, why does Brad chew so loud? Oh, duh. It's because he was raised by wolves and he doesn't know any different. Why is Karen always in such a bad mood? Oh, how could I forget that she's an evil villain that uses a, our company as a front? You know, I'm not the biggest New Year's resolution person. There's always a couple things that uh, I like to think and change. But what I do like about the New Year, perhaps you can relate to this, is the built-in nature of this reset. That the New Year brings an opportunity for each and every one of us to maybe reflect and to consider, man, what changes do I need to make? Is there something that I need to stop doing? Is there something that I need to maybe emphasize and make more of a priority in my life? For example, for me, I haven't been to the dentist in 19 years. And this year is not going to be the year I'm going to break that trend. You know what I mean? It's this opportunity for us to kind of say, man, how did last year go? Did I like the results? Do I want the same results? And most of us probably at some point in, in the next 24 hours will probably think, man, what could I do differently? I want to challenge us to begin thinking, though, also, what did you learn this past year? And so here's five things, just for me personally, that Jesus taught me this past year. Some of these uh, are, are a little spiritual. Some of them might just be overly practical, and I hope they are all helpful for you in some form or fashion, and maybe you can relate to some of these. So here's the first one. Number one is that good intentions without discipline or accountability are useless. I have this quote on my uh, computer in my office that reads this. It says, we have the tendency to judge others on their actions, but ourselves on our intentions. You ever had one of those conversations with somebody, you're like, well, I didn't mean it. If you only knew what I meant, uh, if you just kind of understood my heart, you just, just know that I wasn't trying to do that on purpose. 
But I was thinking about it, asking to be judged on our intentions is like getting pulled over for speeding and telling the police officer, well, if I knew you were watching, I would have slowed down. And it's that same notion that intentions are fine, they're good, they're important, but unless there is action behind them, they're really just kind of pointless. I've come to realize that where good intentions often fall short in my life, and perhaps yours too, is either from a lack of discipline or unwilling to be accountable to others. The Apostle Paul says this, talking about how our actions matter a lot. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Translation is while God knows your heart, while God looks at our heart, our actions are vitally important. That we show who we truly are, not by what we intend to do, but by what we actually do. One of the most impactful books I've read in the, over the past couple of years is this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. If you've read that, you could probably relate. If you are a reader and you want to add something to that list, highly recommend reading this book. I read it a few years ago, and I reread it every single year. And it's this one quote that always sticks out the most for me, in which he says, we do not rise to the level of our goals. And we might translate that. We don't rise to the level of our intentions. He says we fall to the level of our habits. Let me say that again, that we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our habits. It reminds me of the book of uh, Proverbs chapter 26. I think it's verse 11 in which uh, the wisdom given says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool to his folly. Essentially, what's being said between that quote and that scripture is that we are a sum total of our habits, not our intentions. And so if you want to grow this next year, if you want to change, you need to figure out how to turn those intentions into discipline and find people to help you be held accountable in that process. As James Clear talks about this whole concept of atomic habits is that small disciplines committed over and over and over and over again over a long period of time create big changes in our life. And he often talks about choosing ahead is how we create change. And so if we were to take that and apply it to our spiritual life, that's things like, well, choosing to go to church is actually a Saturday decision, not a Sunday decision. That, uh, that following the prompting of the Holy Spirit begins by understanding how to hear his voice. That the call to be generous is something that we decide to do regardless of the circumstances of our finances. That healing and, and hearing the compelling nature of accountability with other people to help us grow is something we must do week after week after week, not just when we feel like we're in the mood. So if you want to change this year, if you want to grow, I challenge you to turn your intentions into actions, into disciplines and areas of accountability. Because hear me when I say this. The greatest version of you is the disciplined version of you. If you've ever gone through a, maybe a health phase in your life or maybe when you played sports or maybe there's a particular instrument you were trying to get proficient at, if you lacked discipline, you weren't actually going to grow and improve. And so the same thing goes with our lives, our relationships, our careers, is that the disciplined version of you is the best version of you, not the good intentions of you. Number two, here's the second thing I learned this past year. 
This one's a little bit more perhaps vulnerable and a little just transparent. Is that regrettable decisions are usually avoidable by patient responses instead of instant reactions. Uh, this past week, my wife and I, we had the chance to take our kids uh, uh, to Ohio for part of their Christmas present. We went to, they have this big old kids uh, uh, science museum and that type of stuff. And so, so we're there, it's kind of mid-morning, and I'm eating a cup of coffee, so I get in, in line, and there's a, this long line. They got some snacks, they got some coffee, and this guy gets in line behind me, and he's on the phone, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah don't worry. Okay, yep, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get a, get me a, a soft pretzel, and then I'll meet you in the dinosaur exam. And then I'm looking and I'm counting, okay, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, and then he's seven, and there's only four pretzels. And I was like, I don't like this guy's odds, but we'll see what happens here. And, and, and to my uh, surprise, the, the next two customers, they each take soft pretzels. And then the next two go away. And then it gets down to the point where there's three people. It's two people in front of me, myself, and then the guy behind me, but only two pretzels left. And my first thought, I kid you not, I'm just being transparent here, is if there's me and one pretzel left, I'm buying it. I don't want a pretzel, but I'm going to do it. And I just want to have fun with this guy and pretend to walk away and turn around with it. I step up, and there's this family of four in front of me, and they're looking, and they're like, okay, we'll take some cotton candy, we'll take some candy, we'll take some drinks. There's one pretzel left, I kid you not. And they're getting ready to, 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 to leave, and then the dad goes, hey, do you want a pretzel? And the kid's like, yeah. And so they go, okay, we'll take the last pretzel. And the guy behind me just goes, you've got to be kidding me. And stuff. He's like, all I want is a pretzel. He's like having this dialogue with himself. And so I'm just like, oh, man, maybe I should pay for this guy's coffee or whatever. I feel kind of bad that I was going to pull a prank on him. As I am getting ready to check out, this guy comes from the back with this vat of pretzels. He's like, don't worry, the Savior is here. He, like, dumps them all on the table, and they start throwing them on the heater and stuff. And the guy just goes, hot dog, we got pretzels. And I share that because my, my initial reaction was, was probably not to do the right thing. Although it was going to be fun and unjust, I was glad there was the ability to be patient leading up to that. When I reflect on this year, I have a couple of these situations, again, just being honest, where, where if I were to summarize it, it's something like this. I like what I said. I very much dislike how I said it. You ever been there before? Maybe it's with a spouse, a friend co-worker. I found myself, you know, there's a couple situations where I like what I said. I don't regret what I said. But if I could go back in time, I would most certainly change how I said something. The proverb says in Proverbs 15, chapter 1, it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stir up anger. Some translations, they'll take out this word gentle and they'll replace it with the word soft. That a soft word turns away wrath. That doesn't mean you have to pull the punches. That doesn't mean you don't say what needs to be said. Verse 4 goes on to say that the soothing tongue is the tree of life. And so one of my resolutions for this year is I desire to speak the truth in love more often. And hopefully that the Spirit will continue to prompt me to learn to be patient. That anger may win arguments, but patience is what wins hearts. doesn't mean we, we beat around the bush. That certainly does not mean we avoid hard or critical conversations. 
If you're someone in leadership, perhaps you own a business or you have employees that report to you, you understand that part of your job is, is, is reminding those who report to you or work for you of they got to do their jobs. And it's not wrong or domineering to address it. However, how it is handled, as I've learned, makes all the difference. This past year, uh, my wife and I were out to dinner and we ran into someone uh, here from church. And uh, we got to talking with them uh, after they had finished their meal. We finished ours. We were kind of both walking out at the same time. And we talked to this person, hey, like, you know, I saw that you're here with somebody that we knew it wasn't their family. Uh, Like, you know, like, how's it going? He said, well, I had to have this really hard conversation with this person who reports to, one, to me on one of my, our teams. And I said, oh, like, like, what was the nature of that conversation? And this person goes on to explain, well, our company's making all these changes and this person used to report to me. Now they got to report to somebody else and we knew it was going to kind of be difficult. And so I got here early. I had my plan. I, I, I knew what I needed to say. And so I said, so I had the big question, so, so how did it go? And this person responded, it went phenomenally. And I said, Why? What, what made such an impact and a difference? That this hard conversation that you were worried was going to be taken a, a, a bad way. Why? And, and this person responded saying, because I stood strong, I showed clarity, indirectness, but it was bathed in compassion. That's why the conversation went smoothly. And then they went on to say this, because right conversations need to be had in the right way. And I love that phrase having right conversations in the right way. If you have the wrong conversation in the right way, it doesn't really get you anywhere. If you have the right conversation in the wrong way, guilty as charged, that's not going to get you probably to where you actually need to be. But having the right conversation in the right way, a patient response instead of an instant reaction makes a world of difference. Number three, is that every decision is an investment. I recently talked with a family here from church uh, about, probably about a month ago, and I was talking to the dad and the, the wife and the kids. They were kind of uh, around uh, finding donuts, whatever it was, and uh, we got to talk. I said, have you guys been, haven't seen you in a while? And he said, yeah, you know, been busy as the, as the kids have gotten older, the schedules have gotten busier, and so we're just in and out a whole lot more, and I said, oh, well, it's just great to see you guys. Uh, anything we can do for you? And he said, yeah, I'd love to just ask you this question. He said, we're feeling disconnected connected from the church and from God. What can we do about that? And initially, I just wanted to say, well, you could try showing up. Maybe we can make a difference, right? But I did it. And I just gave them that, that, that line I just gave to you. My answer was simple. Just think that every decision you make is an investment. And I like to talk about our decisions and what we invest in in kind of a comparison with the parable of the sower. Where is your soil? Where do you find yourself sowing your seed, so to speak, in life? Jesus tells this amazing, amazing parable in Luke chapter 8. And he's talking about the gift of salvation and the various hearts that it receives. But sometimes I like to take this parable and take it and say, but I think that applies to other areas of our life. To consider is where you are planting your seed. Where do you find your common soil to be somewhere that is producing fruit or not? 
Jesus explains the, the end of his parable saying this. I'll read it along with you here in Luke chapter 8, verse 12. And he says, so those along the path, he, after he's saying there's seed that gets scattered, all these different paths, those who, uh, the ones on the path here, and then the devil comes and takes, and this is the part where a lot of us don't like this part, takes away the word from their hearts so they might not believe and be saved. So that's, that's kind of the first one. Second person he says, those who are on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. Then he goes on in verse 14, or they believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. Verse 14, then he goes on to say, but the seed that fell along the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. There's three options. He said, but there's a fourth option he wants us to consider. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce I think sometimes we desire, whether we realize it or not, to be the people scattered in every which direction. We like to do all the things. We like to have our schedules full because we have FOMO. We don't want to miss out. We, we don't want to uh, make a decision and then it come back around and then we regret it, which isn't a bad thing. But I think oftentimes the bigger question we should ask ourselves is not, what are you chasing? Rather, where do you find yourself planted the most? I'd ask myself, where is my soil or the most frequent soils that I find? This idea of soil could be where do you find yourself regularly? Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Like just as an exercise, you could just mentally do this for yourself. If you were to find a pick maybe the top three or four spots or soils from this past year of your life, and you were to tally all of the hours you spent at those places, which would be the top of the list? What would be your top three, your top five? And then I would follow up and say, do you like that order? Do you like that priority? Maybe the, the better way to ask is not to say, well, did you spend time in places you wish you didn't so much? Perhaps another way to say it is, would there be a soil in which you would be disappointed in the lack of time you spent planted there or not. And maybe that soil for you is at home. Maybe this past year your, your job took you out of the home more than you, and you committed to be home more with the family and the kids and you just didn't quite get there. Maybe that soil is the church, Sunday mornings, or, or involved in a group or serving on a team. Maybe that soil is with a particular friend who needed you. And you weren't quite there as much as you would have liked to be. You see, every decision we make is a choice to invest into something. Every decision to skip church is to invest in something else. Every decision to not give to the church is probably to choose to invest in something in this life, perhaps even things we don't even need. Every decision to watch TV over spending quality time with our families, not to have our priorities in order. Every scroll on social media is the potential investment to get caught in that comparison trap. Know your why of why you do things. Know the why of where you go, how you spend your time, your money, because every decision is an investment. 
So start by identifying the soil that you want your seed to grow in and invest in there first. That's number three. Number four is that pushing God aside is much more subtle than it is obvious. When I reflect over my past year, this is probably the one that sticks out the most to me. That when I look through a week or a month, I can look through periods of time in which, man, there was a slow drift away from God for seasons, for weeks, for days, whatever it may be. The majority of us, I think if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, would probably say, man, yep, I, I could have done better. Could have spent more time in his word. Could have spent more time uh, in prayer. Could have spent more time showing God's grace and love for others. Could have taken more opportunities to invite people to church or, or to tell people about the gospel. Maybe this past year was the year you said, you know what, we're going to give for the first time because God loves a cheerful giver, but life got in the way. Or maybe this, year was, uh, this past year was the first year where you said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to organize my schedule and join a team, but then it just didn't quite work out the way it was, that we are so close but not quite there. You know, recently I read an article about a man who was in Arizona who was driving in the HOV lane, so, so the carpool lane, and, and, and a police uh, officer kind of drove past him and noticed a, a strange-looking passenger, a greenish passenger in the seat next to him, so he pulled over the guy. And as he approached the front window and he asked the guy to roll it down, he noticed that this man had been driving in the carpool lane with an inflatable Grinch, cost, uh, inflatable Grinch next to him. And then the, the, the officers and the police department, they, they kind of say, this was funny, we, we like what you tried here. And then, but he, they ended with this statement, they say, we appreciate the festive flair to this technique, but illegal is still illegal. The thing is, is good enough is often not good enough. A day late and a dollar short is still a day late and a dollar short. I think some of us, we find ourselves slowly subtly drifting from God. Maybe not in a big or disastrous way. Maybe not in a full deconstruction or throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But decision by decision, day by day, week by week. That's because in the end, close enough eventually becomes further away. The Apostle Peter warns us against this, and he says this in his letter, 2 Peter first, uh, chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. He says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective, and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. I notice how Peter, he says, make every effort to add to your faith. Have these qualities in increasing measure. Do this so that you be kept from being ineffective or unproductive because anyone who calls themselves a disciple of Jesus, you are called to grow. You are called to produce spiritual fruit. That the spirit of the living God lives inside you, not just to give you a one-way ticket to heaven, but to make you a new creation that has a power and a purpose and a gift and opportunity to grow and to be developed into that new creation starting here and now. As Peter says, if you're not growing, 
If you find yourself being unproductive in your faith, he puts it simple. You are nearsighted. You are blind. You have forgotten that your sins have been washed away. So I found myself asking myself this question. Would I say that I have added to my faith this year? Would you say you have added to your faith this year? Would I wager on myself that I was effective with the grace that Jesus has given to me? Or would it be much easier to point to other areas in my life that I added to? My career, my hobbies, my stuff. In abundance, over and beyond the grace of Jesus. Pushing aside God is a surefire way to become blind in our faith. And it's often very subtle, is it not? Here's the fifth one, number five, this is where we'll wrap up, is this, is that grazing on crumbs will leave you for dead. And the same goes for our faith. My favorite candy, it's new, is called the Nerds Clusters. Anybody know what these, these glorious creations are? They're phenomenal, okay? Go, go to Haymakers on the way out, grab you some Nerd Clusters. Let me just break it down. You got this delicious, like, gummy morsel, almost like a gusher in the middle, and then it's surrounded with many tiny little nerds, okay? And so I got some of these in my stocking because Santa was me, and so I had like four or five packages in my stocking this year, and so, so I got them out, and at Christmas Day, we're, we're having breakfast, and I'm eating some of these because it's Christmas, calories don't matter, whatever, they don't count to tomorrow anyways, you know, you get the picture, right? And I'm eating these, and then my daughter goes, that doesn't even ask, just sticks her hand out, right, because that's what kids do. And so I give her one of these clusters, and she's confused. She's looking and doesn't know how to eat it. And so she's plucking off each individual minuscule. It's like they're nerds the size of like, like, like a piece of salt. And she's picking them off, eating them one by one. She's like, like a rabbit, like just trying to, like just, I don't know, concerned about the gummy in the middle. And then it gets to this point where some of the little droplets have fallen on the table, and she goes down to lick the table. And we're like, whoa, 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 too far. We'll just give you a new one. She says, don't worry about it. I got this. Licks her finger and just sticks it and then just starts licking it. Because she wanted these tiny little crumbs because she thought they were that important. And I share that story because some of us might look on the past year and think, man, I sure did a lot of stuff. But you might in the same breath think, but I left a lot on the table as well. And I tried to survive on crumbs. I tried to survive on bite-sized pieces. I tried to survive on small helpings of community or the spirit or the word or prayer. And you find yourself spiritually famished. In the same way that you couldn't survive eating breadcrumbs day after day after day, the same way our spirits are not designed to survive on crumbs of God. So I don't know what it might look like for you. I don't know what you feel like you might have left on the table. But for me, it's almost always the ways in which I feel like I fell short. I could have done more. I could have been more obedient over here. I could have leveraged that opportunity a little bit more there. There was that relationship that I wish maybe I, I would have put a little bit more effort into it. There's always some crumbs left on the table. But my challenge is to not turn your spiritual life into a series of breadcrumbs. Rather, go to the store. Go to the source. Grab a massive baguette. Slice that bad boy up. Throw it in the air fryer. Turn it into French toast. Do whatever it is that you got to do to feast 
on the graciousness of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 5, and this is where I'll wrap up this morning. So in verse 24 through 26, 25, he says, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Isn't that a powerful verse? Let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not get so self-consumed that we forget who we really serve, who we really worship, and who we really honor with our lives. And I want to close with this. Faith is hard. Being a Christian is not easy. It's never promised to be easy. It's never promised to be something that's rainbows and butterflies. If you just believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then then you're never going to have any problems. You're never going to have any financial strain. All your relationships are going to be perfect. No, living a life of faith is hard. And on top of that, Satan is real. And he doesn't want you to live a life of faith. He wants you to live a life of selfishness. He wants you to live a life of envy. He wants you to live a life of comparison. Faith is hard. Satan is real. And that's why Jesus says, prepare for battle. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the full armor of God so that we live this life of faith knowing each and every day is a battle to be obedient, to be kind, to be patient, to be loving. So if one of your resolutions is this year, and I, and, I, and I hope that it is, to be closer to God this year than you were last year, prepare for battle. Because every time you take a step into a deeper relationship with Jesus, an obstacle's gonna come your way. Satan's gonna throw something at you because he gets scared. Because he knows the power of the Spirit of Jesus that lives inside of you, that wants to transform you, to transform your homes, to transform your community, to transform your businesses. But we cannot fight that battle on our own. We have to fight that battle with the power of God on our side. And as Paul says earlier in Galatians chapter 2, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My desire for the year 2023 is for First Christian Church to continue to be a church full of vibrant disciples. Not dead disciples, not half-hearted disciples, not when I have the time disciples. Vibrant, growing, ready for battle disciples. Men who fight for their families, take care of their wives. Parents who put leading their children one of their top priorities, not just for them to have fun or or have good grades or do well in sports or do well in band, but to teach them the ways of Christ. To be a community of church that when we look at our widows, when we look at the people who have lost loved ones, the ones who have been abandoned or broken or abused, that they find a place full of love and grace and hope and support because we bear each other's burdens with us because there's a battle going on. And Satan wants to stop you from growing closer to Christ. We will be the church that continues to love, to care, to challenge everyone to take that next step of faith. But we want you feasting on the word of God, on the goodness of Jesus. We want you feasting on the power of prayer. We want you to find those disciplines, to find that accountability, to prepare for battle.
and not just live on the crumbs of Christ. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship in this new year? Lord, we pause this morning to thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your spirit. I pray for us this morning as we continue to worship. May you lead us and guide us. May your spirit convict us. May it compel us to see, man, what did you teach me this last year? Perhaps the bigger question is, Jesus, what did you try to teach me this last year that I didn't want to hear it or receive it? What did you teach me and I didn't want to put it into action? God, I pray prayers of gratitude, of graciousness for the way you were faithful and you sustained us. For the people that, that you, you walked them through some of the hardest and most difficult times in their life and you were a God of peace. But you were a God of surrender. I thank you for the opportunity to be one of our many pastors and elders I thank you for this church that we had such great fruit. And a lot of that fruit, most people don't realize. I pray, Lord, and I ask that 2023 is the year for each and every one of us, that we continue to take that next step, that we continue to live a life of worship, continue to live a life worthy of your praise. It's your name that we pray. We offer this to you. 